Coming up next on 2NURFM, it's Thursday Finance with Stephen Pritchard joining us. And today we've got our expert from Centrelink with us. Mandy Barton will be joining us and we're going to have a look, an update, get an update on um, Centrelink sorts of things. So stay tuned for that. We'll also have Henry Jennings along from Marcus Today Financial Newsletter, our weekly market update. And Stephen Pritchard will bring us up to date with currencies and commodities. And of course, we've had a certain thing called the budget happening this week. Thursday finance for our sponsor, Pritchard and Partners. Stephen Pritchard joining us. We've had the budget this week. And you were talking about changes to superannuation last week. Yes, yes. There were major changes pronounced in the budget on superannuation. Um, um, first of all, that the maximum you can now have in your um, pension account, which is your tax-free account, is $1.6 million. Now, these have all got – the little things we're talking about has got different proposed implementation dates. So um, I don't know that you want to rush out and do anything right at this moment. So the maximum you can put in your superannuation, having your accumulation – your pension accounts now $1.6 million. The maximum that you'll be able to deduct on a non on a concessional basis is $20,000 per annum. Now, the, the, also the work test has been abolished. For those people over 65, they'll be also allowed to contribute up to 20000 per annum and obtain a tax deduction for it. And one of the big changes, I think, is the non-concessional or the non-deductible contributions. Um, they've now got a lifetime limit imposed on them. Previously, you were allowed to contribute up to $180,000 a year um, for you know, as many years as you liked. So there's now a lifetime limit of half a million. And that's calculated from the 1st of July 2007. So anyone who's put in um, more than half a million dollars of non-deductible or non-concessional contributions um, now are fine. But anyone who hasn't, the maximum they can actually put in is half a million. So that what, what's basically going to happen, you're no longer going to see these large superannuation fund balances of, of you know, five, seven, eight, ten million dollars because it's just going to be too hard to get it's going to be impossible to get sufficient money in there to do that unless unless you're a fantastic investor or pick some fantastic investments. Um, so so the majority of people I don't I don't think this is going to have any large great effect, but the high income earners will definitely have a, a considerable amount of effect on that. And people who have um, taken advantage of the treasurer's 2007 um, window to tip a million dollars in, a lot of those, I suspect, are, are going to have balances in their pension account above 1.6 million, and that's going to be transferred back out to the accumulation account, which means it will become taxable again. Okay, so a little bit more planning in a different direction. There's a little bit more planning. I mean, the, the, the only thing that's come into effect immediately is the um, concessional contribution. So if, if you listen to us last week and put in your additional uh, money on your concessional contributions, maybe up to 540000 you're fine, but this week it's too late. Okay. Your, your half million dollar limit comes back from 2007. So your okay. projections were right again, Jane. My, my prediction. Well, in the meantime, let's have a look at the facts of currencies and commodities and see how they're travelling. Well, we've had an interesting week here. Um, the, the price of gold in Australian dollars was up 4.65%, uh, and primarily a lot of that's due to the fall in the, the A dollar again. Again, because the, the, the precious metals are always quoted, all the commodities are always quoted in US dollars. Um, and the silver price was up 1.55% for the week to $23.20. Um, the copper price was up 1.7% to the week to $6,584 a tonne. And the nickel price was um, up 4.86 to $12,664 a tonne. 
Now, of course, as we know, the Reserve Bank um, uh, cut interest rates um, on Tuesday. Surprisingly, they cut interest rates because I didn't think they'd do anything with the with the, on Budget Day plus a forecast election coming up. But nevertheless, they, they must think the economy needs stimulating to to do all that. And almost, you know, within a couple of minutes, the Australian dollar fell one point five cents, one and a half cents. So what we've ended up with is down on the week. The Australian dollar is down two point one percent compared to last week to seventy four dollars and fifty nine cents. So you know, got got another two percent ex- more expensive for those people thinking of travelling to the US. Um, We're down against the Great British Pound of 1.4% to 54p or 54 pence and we're down 3.2% to those people for those people who are thinking of going on with those boat cruises in Europe. Um, We're down 3.2% to 64 euro cents. They seem to be becoming very popular. They are very popular popular. indeed. Yes, every time I turn around there's clients on those. Um, And then... Um, the All Ordinaries. The All Ordinaries had a reasonable week. We're up 1.6% um, to 5,335 as of the close yesterday. Um, but the rest of the markets around the world weren't too good. Um, the, the Dow Jones was down 2.1% to 17,651. Uh, the FTSE was down, which is the UK index, was down 3.2% to 6,112. And the Hang Seng was was down 3.9, almost 4% to 20,525. So, so really the Australian Australian market, you know, across the major markets, was the only one that was up, up during the week. Mm. So will the US market be affected by the upcoming elections? Oh, I think so. I mean, you know, markets always don't like uncertainty. You've now got um, – there's a, it appears that Donald Trump's going to be the Republican nomination against lots of people trying to stop him. So I think, you know, it looks like it's going to be between uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton, I'd suggest, and uh, that's going to create a lot of uncertainty in the US market. But, mm. but I think he's very popular with mainstream people over there. Mm. Seems to be. Seems to be. Mm. Um, and petrol. Petrol. Well, the West Texas intermediate crude was up 2% for the week to $58.32 per barrel. And as you predicted, the price fell, Jane, but not by much. Mm. Um, so we're down to a $1.22 a litre, which is down point one point. Nine percent on the week, so we're still up. Bef- we're still up almost twenty cents a litre before the school holidays started. As someone told them, it's not the school holidays anymore. Yeah. Imagine what it's going to do when the long weekend comes up in June. <laughs> um, and, and Sydney, Sydney was up three percent, so that's all. That's good for them. So they're up to a dollar ninety. So, so there's there's now only three cents a litre difference between Sydney and Newcastle. It does seem a big jump over the last two weeks still. Yeah. Mm. And then the diesel price remained pretty much stable, dollar thirteen. A dollar thirteen and a half cents a litre this week, and a dollar thirteen and, and point four cents a litre last week. So no real changes there. And in Sydney, the diesel price is a dollar six. So no real changes on there last week. So it's interesting why the the, the, the price of the fuels up. You know, over the last two weeks is up. You know, eighteen percent. Considerable amount. Considerable amount of money. Mm, yeah, yeah, a lot of money. It's Thursday finance and 26 past 12 and time for our market snapshot, our update with Henry Jennings. Stephen Pritchard, you've got plenty to talk to Henry about. There's plenty to talk to Henry about this week. Plenty of interesting things happening. Hi, Henry. Hi, Stephen. How are you this morning? Good. I'm good. Good. Uh, The traffic's a bit bad up here, but we got there. Um, it's getting like Sydney. Oh, Sydney traffic. Don't even get me started. The place is just clogged. I don't know how anybody gets around this city anymore. It's crazy. Yes. Anyhow, um, the RBA cut interest rates uh, again this week. So what, what effect is that kind of having on the market? 
Um, yeah, the RBA did cut interest rates this week, which was a bit of a surprise. I had been expecting them to stay um, on hold. Um, they seem to be a little rattled by that CPI number that came in below expectations and actually showed that we had some, some disinflation starting to creep in and that inflation was well and truly below their target band. Um, the immediate effect of the market uh, was, was like a massive sort of sugar hit, I guess, um, and uh, the market rallied 110 points on the day that the um, the RBA cut. Unfortunately, we've sort of come back down to earth and we were down sort of 70 points yesterday and uh, dithering around today. So um, since um, since uh, last Friday, we're up about 25 points for the week. So not particularly exciting on that front, but we have had a big week in terms of uh, bank results, the RBA, and also, of course, the, uh, the budget the other night, which I'm sure that you guys are well and truly across. Yeah, there's a lot of things in the budget, and, and you know, there's some, you know, a lot of those things might never see the light of day with the double dissolution coming on. Um, they'll have to, all those bills will have to be reintroduced again. But anyhow, yeah, see what happens. So yeah. Kogan, which is the online electrical uh-huh. retailer, must see some value in the in the um, Dick Smith brand name because they've relaunched or they acquired the Dick Smith website and they've relaunched it. Um, today at the same time they're talking about listing on the ASX. Yeah, I mean, Dick Smith is, is a pretty well-known uh, brand and has got a certain reputation, which unfortunately, due to uh, circumstances in the last few years, has been somewhat tarnished. But as you rightly say, Kogan uh, bought the, uh, the Dick Smith online, hoping to leverage their logis- logistics and supply chain um, and also to be able to, uh, to offer some of those great prices that, uh, that Kogan have on, on some of their products through the Dick Smith online branding. So uh, I guess it adds another plank to their, um, to their business strategy. They are looking to, to float on the exchange, uh, which I imagine would be quite a popular move from, uh, from investors. It has been a great success story, and with this kind of uh, increased uh, integrity, I guess, of the branding of, uh, of the Dick Smith online, maybe that's going to help them raise the money for their IPO. Mm, I, I, I know that my son likes to buy stuff off Kagan and a lot of the, the younger generation seem to love Kagan so I, yeah. I, would, I, I would have thought that you know there's uh, probably going to be a good demand for the stock there when they choose to I, Yeah, I mean I guess at the end of the day it all depends on, on price yeah. and with a stock like Kogan it's very easy to have a look through price uh, towards a similar business like JB Hi-Fi yeah. um, or even uh, yeah. Harvey Norman although that's a little bit uh, more diverse um, and more of a property company in some respects. So, um, so yeah, it's um, it, it will be interesting when it comes along, and uh, certainly it will be relatively easy to compare it with other um, electronics retailers. So um, mm-hmm. they'll have to price it relatively keenly, I guess, and sharpen their pencil um, to uh, to get it away at a good price. Mm. And so. ANZ announced this week was a surprise to the market at least um, that they were going to cut their uh, dividend in response to rising bad debts and yeah. problems in Asia, which of course you and I predicted was no surprise of problems in Asia. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a week of bank results. We had Westpac first cab off the rank, which were slightly disappointing. Um, the sector took a hit. The ANZ figures came out and they were even more of a concern in some respects, but they have got a new CEO, and it did appear that he'd thrown out the baby, the kitchen sink, and everything else he could find uh, in the bad debt provisioning um, to enable them to sort of start afresh. This is, I guess, a pretty common tactic for an incoming CEO, um, that they do sort of want to clear clear the decks, get a a fresh slate, Um, and that certainly is what they 
seemed to do. The market had a, a wild ride on the back of it initially. Um, so the headline number was down 24%. But uh, um, when you looked beyond that, it wasn't quite so bad. The market fell 5% in the first sort of 10, 15 minutes on, on ANZ and then, and then rallied a similar amount the other way. So it was uh, an extraordinary day for, uh, for the stock. Um, an extraordinary day for the sector. So it does look as if uh, ANZ are really sort of trying to uh, start anew with uh, with a new CEO as their Asian strategy hasn't been too flash, um, as you and I have talked about many times. And uh, also it looks like they've been hurt considerably by corporate, uh, a few corporate casualties, things like uh, Arium, Peabody, uh, Slater and Gordon, etc., which they've had to take some quite big write-offs on. And speaking of, of credit ratings and downgrades, Woolworths' credit rating appears to have been downgraded as well during the week. Yeah, Woolies not really doing too well at the moment. They had their results came out, um, and they certainly show that they've got some, some serious issues with their supermarket business as well as other parts of their business. Um, they're, they're getting absolutely blitzed by Coles at the moment. Um, the new man at the helm at the, at the till is uh, Brad Banducci, and he's uh, instigated a, a strategic review, which usually means that uh, you should expect some write-downs, write-offs, some sell-offs, all sorts of other things. They've rebranded the uh, the liquor business to a, to now be called Endeavour Group, um, which uh, Endeavour Liquor Group, so there's possible um, action there with selling them off. And um, the credit agencies have taken a bit of a fright at these latest numbers, and as a result have downgraded it to... Um, uh, only two notches above junk bond status for their debt, which which doesn't mean that it becomes more expensive for uh, for Woolies um, and more problems. So, um, ironically, the actually the Masters business, which has been so long one of their problems, actually had um, relatively good uh, sales increase. So, um, Big W remains a problem, and supermarkets being blitzed still. Mm. Now, we'll see what it's like in six months when the full year results come out. Yeah, I mean the the, the, uh, the CEO, the new CEO, is talking about you know a three uh, three year turnaround, three to five year turnaround. So this is not going to be something that you can turn around quickly. It is a juggernaut, and um, you know th- those things take some time. And uh, you know I'm sure that uh, by the time it's turned around, he'll be uh, moving on to the next one. Well, the first thing they did is to get rid of the people who re-ramped their loyalty card because that's been a complete failure. Yes, yeah, it has. It has. Yes. Um, and, you know, you've only got to walk around the stores to, to, to notice, I guess, the difference between Coles and Woolies, and Woolies looks tired, and, and uh, you know, it just doesn't mm. have a good feel about it anymore, doesn't have a good mojo about it. Mm. Now, we're back in a minute to talk about BHP and what's happened in Brazil. Thursday Finance for our sponsor, Pritchard and & Partners, and our market snapshot at the moment, Stephen Pritchard, with Henry Jennings from Marcus Today Financial Newsletter. Henry. Uh, one of the things that um, BHP f- share, fi- share prices fell quite sharply on the announcement of some legal action in Brazil. I mean, I would have thought that was just expected that that was going to occur. Well, <laughs> well, I guess it was expected the share price would re- react quite violently. Um, I guess the, the, the problem for BHP um, is that this is a, a kind of an ambit $58 billion claim from the Federal Prosecutor of Brazil in connection with the Samarco uh, mine uh, tragedy they had last year. So um, BHP had kind of provisioned for this and made plans and agreed with the government of Brazil about their liability. They share this liability with Vale. Um, and I think the market sort of put it behind itself and said, you know, this is the end of it, it's all done and dusted. And then out of the blue, um, I guess... Um, 
obtain this um, this fifty eight billion dollar ambit claim for for damages very much um, based on the sort of the money that BP um, were originally sued for for the Gulf of Mexico um, Deepwater Horizon disaster. So um, I'm sure at the end of the day, the 58 billion will be ratcheted back to something somewhat more um, more palatable, or even dismissed completely, as BHP has made some provisions already. But for the time being, it's sort of now hanging over um, BHP a bit like a sort of Damocles, I guess. Um, that there is this massive. Um, potential liability sitting out there. Mm, interesting. And and surf stitch, which 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 found, which was inflated <laughs> about eighteen months ago, I think. Yeah. At, at about ten times the current price. Um, now seems the the founder and the chief chief executive has now exited on the rumour that he wants to reprivatise the company. Yeah, surf stitch for me was always a strange one. Um, it was actually sort of a, a shop in in Monavale near where um, where I live on the northern beaches. Um, which was a surf shop which developed a sort of an online back end that was doing far bigger business than the actual surf shop uh, in Monavale. And from there, it's sort of taken on the world and tried to become a global brand and a global kind of, um, not just for uh, for um, sort of surfware, etc., but also in terms of an entertainment hub as well and trying to become almost like a mini billabong or actually becoming better than billabong because billabong has fallen from grace as well. Recently, uh, in the last few days, we've had some profit uh, downgrades, some serious downgrades from the company. And as you rightly say, the uh, the past CEO um, left the company some uh, weeks ago uh, with plans to take the company private again. Um, so it's all got very complicated, very jumbled up, um, I guess. And there's also been no word from him since he left with his bat and ball and decided that he wanted to uh, to buy the company himself back from uh, from the float process. So it has been a bit of a disaster stock halved the other day um, and uh, it has bounced a little bit, but still, you know, I'd imagine there's some corporate appeal for people, but it does a bit look a bit like um, the sort of billabong story but um, being uh, revisited. And... Speaking of pain, I mean, South 32's warned that there's further pain to come for mining stocks. Yeah, as if they haven't had enough pain already. Yep. Uh, South 32 is one of the, I guess, one of the few mining stocks out there that has been debt-free, courtesy of BHP. When they when they divorced South 32, they spun it off um, to BHP shareholders and left it with, uh, with no debt um, and cash on the balance sheet, which has been good for South 32, and it has been a, an astonishingly good performer. Uh, falling below a dollar in the dire days in February, uh, January, February, and then bouncing back to a dollar sixty. So it has been a stunning performer. But the uh, the company warned the other day that uh, you know the bad times are not over. Um, that uh, there are still companies out there that are carrying too much debt, who geared up too uh, heavily in the good times to uh, have uh, increased production, using all this debt to increase their their capabilities. And the chickens really haven't come home to roost as yet. There has been some some theories that South 32 might be an aggressive acquirer of some of these uh, uh, problem businesses, but as yet we haven't really seen uh, the full extent of these these problems. And as a result, I guess South 32 are going to be uh, holding off uh, on their um, on their um, their war chest. Right, well, that's interesting. It's, uh, perhaps they perhaps they're trying to talk the prices down. It could, <laughs> it could well be that having uh, not found any distressed assets to buy with all their money. Um, they are, as you say, they're trying to talk the prices down and trying to create a little bit of uh, uncertainty in the market to give yeah. uh, give themselves a chance to pick up some quality assets at this stage of the cycle. 
anyhow, thanks for that, Henry. We'll Always talk, a pleasure, Stephen. Always a pleasure. We'll talk to you again next week with yeah, Jane. Indeed. indeed. Look forward to it. Henry Jennings, who's Senior Commentator with Marcus Today Financial Newsletter. Thursday Finance and Stephen Pritchard, if you're a carer and how does Centrelink look after you? Well, that's what we're going to find out with Mandy Barton from Centrelink today. Um, Mandy, um, welcome back again. Thank you. So, so carers have received various payments from Centrelink, and so, so what, what would person qualifies as a carer to start with? Okay, so we've got two payments that carers can apply for from human services, and the first one is the carer payment. Now, the carer payment is it's a pension type payment, so it's an income support payment. And with all our income support payments, these are means tested. So we need to look at the person's income and assets to determine if they are eligible for the carer payment and if so, how much of that carer payment they may actually qualify for. The other payment uh, that Centrelink have for carers is the carer allowance. And the carer allowance is a supplementary payment. So it's it's a non-taxable, non-means-tested payment that a person can qualify for. And with the... Both the payments have different rules and regulations and qualifications. So with the carer payment... Um, you don't have to be residing with the person, regardless of whether the care receiver is an adult or a child. With the carer allowance, um, if the care receiver is an adult, you don't have to be residing with them. But if they're a child, you actually must be residing with the person, with the child, to qualify for the carer allowance. So, so how do they care for someone if they're not residing with them? Well, it's care and attention on a daily basis. So it could be caring for a parent. So it may be that the um, the parent lives, you know, a few streets away or a suburb away. And it's very common in the community that people are, you know, providing quite constant care for elderly parents um, by visiting, you know, every morning. They're going there to ensure the parents are eating, uh, that they've had their medication. There's a supervision aspect of it. Um, the person may then, you know, go home home for a little while, come back at lunchtime, you know, again, dinner. Um, so it, it, not necessarily that you have to live with them, but certainly they still need to be providing a good deal of care each and every day to qualify. So, so who, who's kind of eligible for the carer's payment? Does it have to be your parents or your children or, or no. how, how does that all work? No, it's, I mean, with the carer allowance and payment for children, it, obviously it's generally the, the parent's like their children. But with adults, it um, doesn't have to be a family member. It may be a neighbour that you're providing constant care for. Um, quite commonly, it tends to be the husband, wife, our partner, the parents, you know, family members, but it, that's not a rule as such that they need to be related. So what hap- how does the... How do you get a like? So, so I've got a son, so I can't obviously can't get a carer's allowance for him. I wouldn't have thought. So, so how do you determine whether you're entitled to a carer's yeah, so allowance or not? The care receiver needs to um, require the care based on a medical condition. So, it's not providing care day to day in so much as you know just normal care that we have for our children. It's be- extra care uh, for personal care and attention because of a medical condition, disability or illness. So, yeah, the person needs to have So, so you said assessment. illness, so, so if they've got a serious illness but they get better, so can you get the carer's allowance while they've got the serious illness and then it ceases when they... 
You can, yeah. There's okay. um, depending upon which payment we're looking at, there are minimum periods of time that the person needs to be um, unwell for, but certainly for temporary conditions, um, like perhaps like a cancer or something like that. Um, yes, yeah, quite possible to qualify over the short term whilst that person is unable to work, and you're providing that high level of care. Okay, and what about adults? Does the same type of thing apply? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be a permanent condition as such. It can be a temporary condition. The The assessment on, on medical basis requires the care receiver's doctor to complete uh, a form um, and advise of the type of condition and the type of care that's required. Uh, very important to note, it's not... Carer's allowance or carer payment would not be paid for where a person simply is doing all the housework or, you know, doing, you know, those day-to-day things like the washing and mowing the lawn and so on. It is personal care. So what's looked at in the doctor report and the medical report is, you know, can the person bathe independently? How, are they, how is their mobility? Um, you know, those sorts of things are looked at. Right. And so you said it was... was um kind of asset assets and income tested so is that asset income tested on the provider or the person being cared for okay so there's actually two so for the carer allowance remember the supplementary benefit that's not means tested at Mm -hmm. all but the carer payment um what we look at is the carer themselves so depending on whether they're single or partnered the income and asset test applies to them under the pension rules then for them to be eligible whether a care receiver is an adult that adult must also either be on a on an income support payment themselves, so that care receiver may be getting a disability pension or an age pension, um, and that then allows them to satisfy the care receiver income test and asset test. But if the care receiver is not receiving an income support payment, then we actually have a special care receiver income and asset test that needs to be met. Right. So, so if there are so if there are retired, say. Um, public servants who, who's getting a, a, a pension from the state super fund. Yes. Um, there's a different test applies from them for who's getting, say, the age pension from Centrelink. Yeah. So if, if that person's not eligible for an age pension because of their income and assets, then we look at that special care receiver income and asset test to see if they would allow a, a carer to qualify for a payment on their behalf. It's Thursday Finance and we're talking about Centrelink and carers with Mandy Barton from Centrelink. And over to you, Stephen. So you said, you said earlier that the carer doesn't have to be there every minute of the day. So what happens if the carer's got a job? How does, how does that yep. kind of work? Okay, so the income from that job would obviously be assessable against their entitlement to the carer pen- payment under the income test, but there is also something called a 25-hour rule that applies for the purposes of the carer payment. So if the person is working and absent from care less than 25 hours a week, which does include the travel time to and from work, then they can still be eligible. But if they're working full-time, for example, they wouldn't be eligible for the carer payment, although the carer allowance doesn't have the work rule on it. So someone can actually be working full-time and still qualify for that additional supplementary payment of carer allowance. 
this is all very complex. I think they need to people need to go and see you to work this out. <laughs> <laughs> and and so what happens if um, um, the carer decides that they need to go on a on a, a holiday yep. for a couple of weeks or a month or something? What happens to the allowances or the pensions then? Okay, so both the carer payment and the care allowance have the same provisions here, which is handy. Um, respite rules. So under um, the payments, the carer can actually take a break from caring for up to 63 days in every year under the respite provisions. And during that time, they can actually do whatever they like. So they can take a holiday. They can actually go overseas if they like because the carer payment is portable for up to six weeks, as is the carer allowance, which means they can take a, a short um, trip overseas if they'd like to. Um, there's also hospitalisation provisions within the carer payment and allowance, which means if the care receiver, for example, has to go into hospital, as long as the carer is still participating in the care by going to the hospital and, you know, looking after them, giving them mental support and etc., then there's an additional 63 days for hospitalisation there as well that don't use those respite days. So what happens if the person you're caring for goes on the holiday with you? Well, then it's simply that you're both, if, you, if you're travelling outside Australia, then we'd certainly have to look at um, the care receiver's payment entitlement yep. and how portable that payment might be as well. Right, but if it was internally? If it was in, inside Australia, as long as you know, you're still participating in the care, then there shouldn't be a problem. Okay. And so, so, so what then happens if the, if the person being cared for gets too old and has to go into a, a nursing home or um, other kind of aged care facility? What happens to the carer's payment then? Okay, so for the carer payment, when the person is um, permanently admitted to an aged care facility, um, the carer payment doesn't cancel immediately. We give the carer some time to adjust and make provisions to potentially you know, go back to work or look at another payment entitlement, and they have a 14-week extension of their carer payment from the date they enter care. Carer allowance, however, does cease immediately upon entry to care. Okay. And so just one question. So so if someone's already on a, you mentioned before, if someone's already on some allowance, say an age pension, yes. and then they want to get a, a carer pension to, say, care for their husband or wife, do, do they get two pensions? Or no, what? no. It's one payment or the other. Okay. And quite often it's more beneficial often being on the carer payment because the carer payment does get a carer supplement every July, which is a $600 payment. So always worth contacting uh, Centrelink. 132717 is the number specific for carers. Okay, thanks for that, Mandy. That's fantastic. Thank you, Mandy Barton from Centrelink and Stephen Pritchard. And Thursday Finance will be back next Thursday after the midday news on 2 and FM. News is coming up next.